take your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 1. I've been a little bit under the weather. I was out Wednesday and Thursday. I've been sick in a long time, but somebody shared something with me either at the university or I was in Nebraska last week, and Dr. John is sick today. So I don't know. We were together last weekend, and I don't know if, uh, you know, somebody gave it to us or somebody gave it to me and I gave it to him, and I'm choosing the former rather than the latter because I don't want responsibility for our pastor being home today. So um, Nate Busnitz, uh, one of our elders, Nathan, is uh, in the pulpit today. He got a call yesterday saying, Dr. John is sick, so will you preach? So pray for Nathan. He's one of our teammates, and I know what those calls feel like. You know, you go, oh, goodness, my Saturday just changed. So pray for Nathan today. He's all certainly up to it. You know that, but I know he would appreciate your prayers. Well, today we're back in the book of James. Anybody remember what James is about? (laughs) James is the conduct or the convictions, the lifestyle of a real Christian. It's the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. It's the way real faith works. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the head of the church at Jerusalem. He is writing a letter early. This is before 50 A.D. The church has been dispersed like seed because of persecution. So they're out in the world, and the presumption is he's hearing reports about how newly converted to Christ Hebrew Christians are living their Christianity, their faith. And as a shepherd would, he wants to exhort them to understand that real faith manifests itself in validating works. You don't just say it. Faith. faith. <laughs> it's going to be one of those days. Technology <laughs> everywhere. It's Quattro from afar saying, watch this, Harry. <laughs> if I can do it, you can do it. <clears throat> faith w- without works is dead, which means it's not living because it's not valid and real. One of my favorite verses in this little book, Oh, foolish fellow, do you not know that faith without works is useless? Has no value. So this is a book about real Christianity, the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. This is how faith works. And I want to keep emphasizing this. When your faith is working, it is maturing your faith. It doesn't just prove it. It improves it. So when you live your faith, chapter 1, when you deal with trials by faith, embracing them as a, a gift from a good God through a hard thing to do a good thing, when you pass successfully through the season of difficulty, or when you are in the season of difficulty and living by your faith, you are growing your faith. You're exercising it. That's why James says, Hey, hang on to endurance. Let endurance have its perfect work so that you can be whole, complete, lacking in nothing. Abraham's faith was working with his works so that when he offered Isaac, he was, his faith was perfected. Now, it doesn't mean perfect. It means matured, advanced, grown. So when you live your faith, James says, you not only manifest the reality or validate your faith, you mature your faith. You not only display it, you advance it. 
Today we're in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We've talked about the evidence of real faith, how a Christian thinks and lives, the proof of their faith, and we saw in verses 1 through 18, real Christians deal with difficulty differently and successfully. Outward difficulty, verses 2 through 8, financial difficulty, 9 and 10, and then verses 11 through 18, inward difficulty, temptation. Then we saw that real Christians are changed, verse 18, by the Word of God, and they are changing by the Word of God, which connected us to the next section, verses 19 through 25. And let me remind you, 19 through 25 says, real Christians proactively seek the word of truth. They are quick to hear, and they diligently apply the truth. They are doers of the word, not just hearers. And remember, a hearer is an enthusiastic learner, a note-taker. They're more than a note-taker and an enthusiastic learner. They are diligent appliers. So real Christians proactively seek the word of truth and diligently apply the truth, not just enthusiastically learn the truth. In other words, genuine faith is proven not by how often it hears the Bible, but how effectively it applies the Bible. So you don't get the gold star just by learning it. You get the gold star by learning it and doing it. Now this morning, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself, says James, to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What's the theme and topic of these two verses? What word is repeated with emphasis? Religion. The person who says they are religious, and what is true religion? Let me summarize what this little section says about real Christianity, and then we'll unpack with some detail the substance and content of this book. Here's how I would boil it down. Real Christians, says James, have a religion, listen to this, seen in reality. Real Christians have a religion seen in reality. It's not what they think or they suppose or imagine It's what is because of what is revealed about their claim. Real Christians have a religion seen in reality. They walk their worship. How? By controlling their tongue, by visiting the vulnerable, by helping the helpless, and staying unstained. Right. So that's the summary of these two verses. Genuine faith is proven by how it talks, proactively cares for the needy, and how it avoids worldly compromise. That is the overarching 
revelation of these two verses. Real Christians have a religion you can see in reality by how they talk and how they care and the quality and holiness of their life and heart. I want to focus on verse 26 today. I want to talk about, and the theme for today is bridle your tongue. Real religion. My title today, if I were to give this one, is bridle your tongue. Let's look at what the verse says. Real Christians control their tongue. If anyone, now I circle the words anyone, no restriction, does not matter who you are or how religious or well-known, anyone, young and old, pastor, child, anyone, if anyone thinks or supposes it's a present active verb, which means this is the regular way they imagine things to be. This is a subjective perception. It's a strong perception. It's, it's the word good with the word appear with another word attached with saying you strongly feel like you are a good person. You have a good opinion of yourself. Thinks is estimate of yourself, opinion of yourself, personal perspective of of subjective judgment. I'll give you an example. When Jesus was walking on the water, the disciples were in the boat in Mark chapter 6, verse uh, 44 or 49, rather. They thought Jesus was a ghost, And it's the same word. They had a strong opinion that what they were seeing, their opinion of it was reality. And so what James is saying here is this person has a high opinion of themselves, a subjective opinion of themselves. They believe something, a subjective opinion. To be, they believe, they think, themselves to be. That's a state of being verb. This is the way they think reality is. And this next word, religious, is only used one time in the entire Bible right here or in these two verses. Religious in this way is a person who is demonstrably and ceremonially God-oriented. They're pious worshipers. They're dressed appropriately. They act appropriately. They are, in their view, religious. The word, the root of the word means they tremble. They have a fear of God. They have a legitimate desire to be honorable, pious, committed. They're religious. They're sincere. They have a strong opinion about themselves. I'm a religious person. I'm a God worshiper. I'm a God fearer. Notice the next part of the verse, and yet does not bridle his tongue. The yet does not introduces a contradiction. The claim and the supposition of what I am and the behavior of what I do. 
The yet does not says there's a contradicting reality to the belief I have about myself in my head. So if I use myself, I say, I'm a religious person. I'm a God-fearer. I'm committed. I dress like a Christian. I go to places where Christians gather. I'm religious. But there's a contradiction between my reality, how I live, and what I say, and in this case, what I think about myself. And that contradiction involves my tongue. To be religious and yet does not bridle his own tongue. Now, I want you to see the word own, your own tongue, not somebody else's tongue, yours. The word bridle is what you think it is. It means to control with a bit in your mouth. The word has to do with you have control, you can restrain like a bit and a bridle on a horse. And as I was preparing this morning early on, I was thinking, because my house is a horse house, not because horses live there, but we have horse lovers in the house. And um, I remember with Karen and the training of horses, you need different bits for different kinds of horses. If you have a horse with a soft mouth and is responsive, you use a soft bit, snaffle. But some horses are hard-headed. They want to do what they want to do, so you have to up the incentive. And there are some bits that look like they came out of the Middle Ages. And Karen does not like using them because she feels like they're harsh and hurtful. But the point that I want to make by reflecting on that is it doesn't matter how intense the persuader is or the incentive is, you need to do what you need to do to control your tongue. You need to take whatever measures, because what this word means is you have a control of your tongue that works. And in this case, you don't have a control of your tongue. You say you're religious, but you do not bridle, you do not control your tongue. And I was just arguing in my thinking today that there are different kinds of ways to control your tongue. You just need consequences that are sufficient that will motivate you. The word tongue is what you think it is. It's the instrument to communicate thoughts and words. Now listen, you communicate with your tongue verbally, but this would have to include what you say written or socially on the media. It's what you communicate. So this tongue is an instrument to speak words, but no matter the medium, if you text them, if you email them, if you Facebook them, surely that would have to be included in this. And the reason I say that is because people talk different on the Internet than they would talk in real life. People say things to me on the Internet I'm confident they would never say to me in real life. At least not twice. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Does not bridle his own tongue, but, the adversative, deceives. This means you deceive yourself. You lure yourself into deception. 
You deceive yourself with a false reality. You give yourself a distorted impression, and therefore you deceive your own heart. Look, you may deceive others with your piety, but the greater deception is your own deception. This is talking about self-deception. It's not a warning to a known hypocrite, listen to this, but to a deceived professor. Someone, they're not putting on a show. They actually think they're religious. They go to Grace Church. They listen to the sermon every Sunday. They come to fellowship group. They're in the Bible study during the week. They think they're religious. And yet, a contradiction in their reality. They make that claim. It's, it's sincere. It's honest. But the contradiction of the reality is they do not control their tongue. And because they do not bridle their tongue, they deceive themselves. Or they are, they are revealed to be deceived. Because you cannot say, I'm religious and not control your tongue. And if you can't control your tongue, guess what you're not? Religious. Because the verse goes on to say, he deceives his own heart. This man, the self-deceived man, his religion is, say it, worthless. No value. It's not genuine. It's not weighty. It's not real. I don't know about you, but that's a sobering declaration. And then you have James chapter 3, which says we all stumble in many ways. Verse 2, James chapter 3, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, a mature man, able to control his own body. So listen, we all stumble in many ways. This is not to say you never fail to control your tongue. This is to say that the pattern, the evidence, the observable reality of your life is you are a tongue controller. You're careful of what you say. There are rules, biblical rules, about what you say. There are things Christians say and talk about, and there are things Christians do not say and do not talk about. Bridle your tongue. And my question, and the rest of our time will be spent answering it, bridle your tongue from what? What do you need to control if you're going to manifest real religion? And if these things are evident in your speech life, don't deceive yourself into thinking, well, I can talk like that and still be a religious person. Bridle your tongue. Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from some things. Let me offer you a few biblically. First of all, real Christians bridle their tongue by refraining from what I'm going to call much speech. Too much talking. Too many words. Proverbs 10, 19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains, synonym, bridles his lips, is wise. 
smart. Why? Because if you talk too much, you sin a lot. Proverbs 27, 17. By the way, I uh, met the head coach at Nebraska last week, Scott Frost. It's a bad week for Nebraska. They got thumped by Ohio State. It was like an unfair fight. But when I met the head coach on Saturday morning, Dr. MacArthur did chapel, and we did breakfast with the team right after the chapel. And it, You know what was most impressive about him is how quiet, humble, and careful he was with his words. You know, a lot of head coaches are PR people. You're, you're around them, and you know they're used to doing the people mingle thing. Scott Frost was a man of few words. And I, I told John, I said, you know, I like that guy. There's something about the humility and not having to say a lot. But what you said meant something? Struck me. Man of few words, impressive, humble. He's got a ways to go in his recruiting. But... Uh, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 27, a man of knowledge restrains or bridles his words. And here's an interesting connective statement, which I think gives a clue as to when you are most inclined to not restrain your words. And a man of understanding keeps a cool head. Because when you're unrestrained, typically it goes along with being exercised and frustrated and angry. And somebody has violated you or there's a perception of violation and there's frustration and you hit that, that trigger and then all of a sudden what happens? Lips are not restrained. Tongue is not controlled. You say things you will regret. Ecclesiastes 5.3, a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. Proverbs 13.3, he who guards, that's controlling what comes out of your mouth, like a guard would at a door or a gate. He who guards his mouth protects his life from what? Loss and injury. But the one who opens his lips in unrestrained and unbridled speech, that's a parenthetical I threw in, invites his own ruin. So you talk a lot, you sin a lot. You talk a lot, and you endure injury a lot. And then there's this sobering statement Jesus made. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You know why? Because words matter. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. When we get to James chapter 3, you can, you're going to hear it. It's a little member, but it has great influence, like the rudder on a ship, like a, a flame that starts a big fire. It's an unruly member that must be ruled by the power of the Spirit in every Christian follower of Christ. Because real religion bridles its tongue. Number two, rash speech. Rash speech. So not just too much speech, but I'm going to use the word rash speech. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Words without enough thought. Let me say it another way. You'll get this one. No filter speech. You know, people, we sometimes say, the person has no filter. 
This is that. You know, we saw it in James 1.19 where we were exhorted, be slow to speak. Remember the word slow has to be thoughtful before you talk. Be quick to hear, but think before you talk. Pause, reflect. Ecclesiastes 5.2, this is encouraged when you're before God. Do not be hasty to speak. Do not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. After all, God is in heaven, you're on the earth. So let your words be few. Don't speak rashly before God. It'll injure you. Proverbs 12, 18, a rash speaker, this is when you're talking before men, a rash speaker is like piercings of a sword. Listen, when you talk rashly before God without thinking, it could be injurious to you. And when you talk rashly before men, it's injurious potentially to men like you had a sword in your hand stabbing. Don't be rash. Think. Pause. Go slow. Third category. Bridle your speech. Bridle your tongue. Refrain from hurtful words. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Just a few pages to the right. Hurtful words. I'm talking about words that injure I'm talking about destructive to a human being's heart words. I'm going to read Psalm 34 to you, but we're going to read and look at 1 Peter 3.10. Psalm 34, verse 13, it's parallel to the thoughts we're going to see in 1 Peter. Keep your tongue from evil. The word evil has to do with injurious evil. It's not talking about just dark. It's talking about destructive. Not good, not noble, not uplifting, hurtful. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 where you see the same statement, but the context will give clarity to the nuance of the exhortation. And listen, Christian, every Christian ought to own these verses in 1 Peter 3. They are the summary of Christian conduct that honors God in a dishonorable world. They are the conduct that validates your faith so that unbelievers go, wow, I'm interested in what they have to say. Verse 8, to sum up, let all be, to sum up all the behavior and attitude that ought to govern a Christian in a fallen world. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Now look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Verse 10. For let him who means to love life and see good days, here it comes, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Now, Bible student, contextually, what kind of evil is Peter saying you ought to bridle? And by the way, the word refrain, it's a very strong word. It's an aggressive, aorist word. It is stop it and stop it right now. It's not like refrain from bringing 
food or drinks into the auditorium. Okay, because refrain doesn't say no way, no how. But yesterday, going through TSA, it was thou shalt not bring your water bottle through. You pay $5 for a water bottle once you get through. You know how that works. It's a scam. The word refrain in this passage, stop it. Not a few less evil words, no evil words. Contextually, what are the evil words? They are the retaliatory words referred to previous. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. The word insult in this context, verse 9, the words evil have to do with destructive language. It's interesting, the word insult comes from a Latin word which means game, word game. It's where words are weapons and you compete with someone or fight with someone with words. Words are used as weapons to win the game of who's the best, who's right, who's strongest. Insults are disparaging and damaging, listen to me, word weapons. For the Greek in that culture, when this was written, insult was an art form. People were celebrated because of their capacity to injure with sharp words, to know how to insult others so they could win the contest of wounding words. Listen, this is trash talking at a whole nother level. This is me using language that injures your heart. Go back and look at the verse again in verse 9. No injury for injury, no verbal bruise or wound for verbal bruises and wounds, but look at the adversative conjunction, but giving a blessing instead. This is, this kind of speech is the opposite of giving a blessing. What is giving somebody a blessing? Ulageo, from which we get eulogy. Think funeral. What do you do at a funeral? If you're going to eulogize the departed, you're going to stand up and say, Harry was what? Well, you're not going to say he was a horrible guy. You might think he was, but nobody says that at a funeral. They eulogize. Legeo, to speak, the prefix, ooh, you speak good of them. Eulogies are where people stand up and say, you know, let me tell you about Harry. He was a good guy. Let me tell you all the ways he was a good guy. Isn't that what you do at a eulogy? Anybody been to a eulogy where they didn't do that? I mean, I've buried some guys who were scoundrels, and I've never heard anybody stand up and say anything but good of them. Because you can find something good normatively. I know that could be overstated. This is what you bridle. Words that are not good and uplifting. You not only bridle those words, you come back with uplifting words. Instead of 
giving somebody what they deserve, you give them what they don't deserve. You bless them with good words. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3, and I want to punctuate this. And the reason I'm spending a little more time on it is because I think this is where we live. It's what happens at our home. One spouse injures another spouse, and guess what happens? Another injury occurs. Insult for insult, hurt for hurt, disrespect for disrespect. Typically, that's revealed not in the countenance, but in the words. I want to take you into the home, and I want to remind you, husbands, in chapter 3, verse 19, there are two verbs, imperatives to you. One, a positive. Husbands, love your wives. And then this one. And do not be embittered against them. Some of your Bibles may say harsh. The word embittered comes from a Greek word to be stabbed. Sharp words that stab or injure. Embittered is when you respond out of being wounded. So I'm not, I'm not the first actor. Someone has wounded me. In this case, wife wounding husband. That ever happen? Of course it happens. Two people in close proximity where there's depravity and the reality of the enemy... People hurt each other. Sometimes people stab and poke one another with words. What does the injured party do? They defend themselves. You injure me, inclination of an injured husband, I'm going to injure you back. You disrespect me, you use harsh words with me, you dis do something that Stabs me in the heart. Let's just use it that graphic. Husbands, don't ever injure back when you've been injured like that. Don't ever be embittered. Embittered means you respond out of an injury. You don't hurt back ever. Did you hear that? Anybody besides me convicted? Tying 1 Peter 3 to that, you give a blessing instead. You find something good to say to the person closest to you who has just injured you. Because if you take up your sword too, does healing happen? Is Christ dishonored? Is Christ honored? Is the marriage advanced? It is not. And no, he is not. Harsh and hurtful words that spring from injury are to be bridled. You may have been poked or stabbed and you want to defend or retaliate. Bridle your tongue. No hurtful words, period. The opposite of blessing. I mean, if you want to be super relevant, the opposite of blessing in our culture is telling someone to go to hell. Or asking God to damn them. We use those words like they don't matter. They do matter. And if you call yourself a Christian, 
and you lay claim to the fact that you're a follower of Christ and you don't bridle your tongue and refrain from those kinds of words as a pattern of your life, you deceive yourself. And you know what your religion is? Empty. Because your words betray your claim. Because out of your heart come the words out of your mouth. Are you with me? Now listen, I'm camping on this because we have a word problem in Christian culture. The number one reason unbelievers reject what we say is the hostility they see in the way we talk and act. That's unacceptable. And it's one thing to control my tongue in public, because we do that, right? We do that with our children. We may do that with our spouse. <laughs> Before the football game in Nebraska last week, John and I were sitting together right where o Ohio State was coming out of the tunnel. And it was the uh, alumni, I forget what they call, the, the Letterman's Club. So you're close to the field, and you got lettermen, or those who have lettered at Nebraska in football. This is where they sit. So John and Harry are looking at Ohio State coming out, and the next thing I know, I'm banging into John. And I'm banging into John because this guy is banging into me. It was like I wasn't even there. And he's leaning in on me, and I mean, I'm, I'm not a small person. And I am resisting the pressure, but it didn't matter. He's pushing on me. And he's pushing on me, and he's looking at Ohio State, and he's using every four-letter word and then some. And he's telling them how they don't belong in Memorial Stadium, Nebraska. This is our house. And, I mean, he's giving them the business, and he's pushing on me. And I'm going, dude, relax. <laughs> Man, I had to wash my ears out. He had a wife and two little boys with him. Do you know what happened? Wife and two little boys evaporated. He felt bad after he had launched into his tirade. He kept saying, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just get fired up. And uh, he was a backup quarterback at Nebraska back in the day. And he said, this is our house. And he's just justifying. He said, so I'm sure that'll go a long way with your wife. He said, yeah, I'm in trouble with my wife. And then he saw my master's university stuff. And he said, so uh, what's that? I said, well, that's a Christian university out on the West Coast. <laughs> I said, have you heard of John MacArthur? That's him. Oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> he said, I'm a Christian. I just baptized my two sons last week. What do you think? I was preparing in heart for this message. I wanted to say, you don't qualify based on what I'm studying. Language is revelatory. It's, it's like an instrument that exposes your heart. So what is being said here is that hurtful words, harsh words, reveal your heart. Does anybody remember what I was saying before I went off on that? 
seems like I was taking you someplace. Was I? You don't know, then I, I won't admit it. What? Yeah, the word blessing. I did say that. You say, say good things, not hurtful things. I took you to Colossians. This is good. A little review. <laughs> Seemed like I was going somewhere, and that popped in my mind about this guy. I'd tell you his name, but I don't want to embarrass him. Let me give you a fourth area to refrain. Because I talked about hurtful words, damaging word weapons. And I want you to stop cussing and hurtfully talking. And every word is not overtly evil in terms of the language, but it can be equally hurtful. Fourth category, and it's housed here too in 1 Peter, what I'm going to call refrain from manipulative or deceptive words. Back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Refrain your tongue from evil and lips from speaking guile. The word guile is the Greek word dalos, and it, it means to decoy or trick, to deceive on purpose. Think used car salesman. Someone who says things to manipulate an outcome. This exhortation is to stop, to stop right now, all manipulative words that decoy people into believing that you are one thing and you think one thing, you're safe when in fact you're not safe. It's the put on the good front person. It's the person who appears to be a friend, but in fact they behave as an enemy. You know what this person is? A Christian gossip. This is the person who you think is on your side, and it's, it's cloaked. Let me give you an example. Hey, will you pray for Bob? He just lost his job. Heard they weren't happy with him. Pray for him. I know it must be hard on him. Did you hear it? I injured Bob with a prayer request. She's a good-hearted person, but her kids just don't respect her. Did you hear it? You look Christian. You feign concern and loyalty, but in fact, you're intent on diminishing them in someone else's eyes. Let me tell you what that is. Dark. Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Proverbs 26, 19, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Fifth category, refrain your lips from, go to Ephesians 4.29, destructive words. We've talked about hurtful words. I want to talk on nuance a little bit, destructive words. Let me define destructive this way, words that tear down, not build up the spirit. You know this passage, but I want to reacquaint you with the depth of it and the force of it. So you know what Ephesians 4 is. Because God's been so merciful to you, live like it. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word. Unwholesome, really unwholesome. Spoiled, rotten, stinky, foul. Let no stinky words. 
gross words. Let no unwholesome word. You see the word no, not a one. No rotten words proceeding from your mouth, but only. See that word? Only. No and only. Not one and only these. But only such a word as is good. Agathos. Practically good. It actually functions in a positive outcome for what purpose? Edification. You know this word, edify. It means to strengthen a person's heart and spirit, to build them up. I read recently someone has said that a Christian's speech is to reverse negative verdicts by speaking only words of building up truth. Honestly, this is the give a blessing instead, a good word. I read of a church recently that was challenged by a guest speaker to speak, and I want you to think this through, And because I, I, I like this. I'm going to challenge you too, to speak only words that make souls stronger. As blood-bought grace daughters and sons to use only words that call out the best in each other versus punishing each other for the worst. To speak the truth in love is to offer encouragement, to put courage into a soul. Speak uplifting words, words that God speaks over them. You're my child. I love you. Listen to me. If people were sold out, if churches were sold out to that practice, I think the disengaged world would be interested in engaging. Churches ought to be a safe place an encouraging place, an edifying place because of the edifying commitment to speak words that strengthen the soul. What if we chose kindness over criticism? Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that strengthens a person's soul. Find something good to say or don't say anything at all. When you encounter someone, and this is not just church, this is Christianity because it's wherever you go. Encourage, uplift. Notice what it says. For edification, according to the need of the moment, is it kind, is it true? And someone has said, is it necessary? According to the need of the moment, I'm going to give you this last one and you can think about it. So it does what? Ministers grace to those who hear. So this is what the sixth category of refraining and bridling your tongue. Refrain your tongue from grace-stealing words. Words that steal the joy of God's favor and the delight of God's grace. You know, one of the synonyms for grace is delight. Only words that bring delight and grace. So here's your assignment this week. What are some grace-stealing words that you have heard or you're tempted to use? What are some grace-giving words 
someone said something to you and it's really impacted you in an uplifting, soul-strengthening way. I want you to think about that. Christian, real Christians, their religion, it's seen in reality. And it's seen in the way we refrain and bridle our tongue from some things that hurt instead of help. Too many words, rash words, retaliatory words. I'm going to hurt you because you hurt me words. Destructive words. There is life and death in the power of the tongue. Don't underestimate it. Can you say amen? All right. I'll be back next week, Lord willing. Oh, by the way, I'm with you for a couple of weeks. Then I go to Boston the third week, and then I'm back again. So, And I'm not going anywhere. I told Karen I'm done traveling. Father, thank you for the time today. And I know this is sobering. There's not a person in the room that couldn't be at some point convicted over the careless words, the things that we say and the retaliation that sometimes we are guilty of. Lord, would you cleanse us and recommit us to a conviction that says, what I say matters. And the psalmist said, it set a watch over my mouth. Please protect me from the language that dishonors Christ, injures people, and contradicts my claim. In Jesus' name, amen.